this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up is Chris Munch, who started C-Labs in the Internet of Things area. The Internet of Things, by the way, I got Chris to define it during this session. Think if you want to get your oven to talk to your thermostat, there's a little piece of software that has to talk to two disparate pieces of technology. That's what Chris did. In the early days, it was a custom consulting business, and he made the tough transition from custom consulting all the way over to a product business. And I think it's a fascinating story of his little secret for getting that to make sense, both from a cash flow perspective as well as from an IP protection perspective. So listen for his tips on transforming a service business into a product business. He also has some great tips on how to manufacture negotiating leverage when, frankly, you don't have any. He was running out of cash when he went to sell his business, so he's got some good tips for doing that. Um, how to use a build versus buy calculation when you're valuing your business. And this, and you know, some surprising tactics, I think, for hiring C-level talent into your business. Uh, so here to tell you the rest of the story is Chris Minch. Chris, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thank you for having me. So your company, C-Labs, what got you into this business in the first place? How come you started C-Labs? Well, um, at the time, I was uh, just ending a, an employment at Microsoft. And my last job at Microsoft was actually looking into the distributed embedded systems, connecting embedded devices together. And um, unfortunately, that was right in 2008 when the recession hit and uh, Microsoft wasn't able to um, basically grow as fast as they wanted to. And I thought this, is, this industrial IoT, the Internet of Things, is way too interesting to let it uh, sit on a while. So I decided to leave Microsoft and start my own company around the industrial IoT. At the time, the term IoT didn't exist. It was, um, as I said, uh, the connection of embedded devices, of uh, machines talking to each other. And I'm very fascinated by that aspect of creating revenue and business from that. You know, it's funny. You, you mentioned IoT and Internet of Things. I think this is embarrassing, but I, I don't actually know what that is. I, I've certainly heard of it. I think Fast <laughs> Company's run like a cover story on it. And I got through like three paragraphs, I think, on the article and thought, you know what? I don't, I don't get it. It's going way <laughs> over my head. So can you explain? Explain Internet of Things, IoT, to me as if I was 12. Okay, so um, the IoT is um, a, a connection of um, any device that is electronic and uh, bringing new value to those devices by connecting them. So think about an oven and a 
uh, thermostat talking directly to each other at uh, Thanksgiving, where the oven says, I'm going to cook a, a turkey now. Hey, thermostat, go down with the temperature because I will heat up the house anyway. Right. So these two are talking and because they're talking, they create something that is um, new and better than if the thermostat was working by itself and the oven was working by itself. That's right? a cool analogy. I think I finally get it. Yeah, that's the real IoT. The The industry currently is um, thinking we have to do everything through the cloud. So the oven is talking to the cloud and the thermostat is talking to the cloud. And then there's some magic juice from somebody that uh, tells the oven or the thermostat what's going on. That, in my mind, is the TOI, things on Internet. It's a precursor of the IoT where the devices really talk directly to each other. But um, And so yeah. C-Labs, this software company you built, was focused on, 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 on accelerating, so, so helping the oven talk to the thermostat. Exactly. So our mission in life is the real IoT. We want to connect devices directly. And if it's not possible to, to have them talk directly for whatever reason, right, network boundaries or policies or whatever, uh, we go through the cloud, but only then. And um, the other thing we were doing is we're focusing on industrial automation. So factories and uh, um, refinery plants, anything that has an industrial background, uh, consumer like homes is uh, for us just a secondary market that we might look into. But at this point in time, we're focusing solely on industrial scenarios. Got it. Okay. So this is 2008. Um, mm -hmm. In the early days, was it, my understanding uh, in reading a little bit of the history, it, it was kind of custom software. So, you know, Bosch would hire you Correct. to build, you know, a, a little piece of software that would talk to the thermostat, like Bosch, the oven would. Whatever. <laughs> Correct. Yes, and in at those days, um, there was no real story around that. Every device was basically sitting there and saying, "Hey, you talk to me." And the other device is saying, "Hey, you talk to me." And because they're both waiting for the other one to talk to, and no communication happened, right? So some intermediary had to come in and um, speak on the one side, thermostat, and on the other side, oven. And uh, that's a product that we call a, a in the factory world, a factory relay, in the home world, a home relay that relays the information from one device to another without the cloud, although you could put it in the cloud. But we'd say the, the IoT should be uh, enabling that without cloud access. Got it. Out of interest, and this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but why, <laughs> why, why are you so keen that it not go through the cloud? Uh, in factory automation, there are many reasons for that, um, especially the the privacy aspects. Um, a, a, a certain amount of data that's created on one device, like a robot, is considered IP of the company who owns the robot. And sharing that in the cloud with possibly third parties is a very tricky thing. Um, it can lead to espionage. It can lead to optimization of the robot at the competition. So there's a lot of reasons why um, manufacturers don't like to have their data in the cloud. Um, and with all the recent incidences with the NSA uh, accessing data of companies, um, it, this fear has even accelerated. So they rather keep all the data in-house and create these, uh, these IoT solutions in-house, not going over the cloud. The cloud has uh, a lot of benefits uh, in regards to computing power and storage space. 
and there are very cool scenarios for that. But for the for the generic um, real-time communication between devices, the cloud is not necessary. Okay, so let's go back to the business model. In the early days, it was custom software, right? So company would call call you up and say, "We need a piece of software to 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 mm -hmm. do this factor relay piece." Um, how did you how did you price it? So there's a project, you get a deposit up front, and you you bill the rest of it in the, at the end. Is that the kind of business model you had? Yes, exactly. So 50% upfront, 50% at the end at completion. That was our, our normal business model. And then uh, we, we charged by the hour. It was basically a service um, deal at the time because every device was different. Uh, we didn't have a standard product we can just plug in and, and help the customer with. That, that was all developed over time. So we're at the stage now where we just basically sell an off-the-shelf product that sits in between and the customer just buys the product um, and actually licenses it. It's a, it's a subscription fee. So you, um, you've made that shift from custom consulting now to you've got a product. Exactly. What that triggered was our the goal shift from the beginning? Because so a lot that, of people, a lot of people listening to this, Chris will be like, that's, mm -hmm. that's my dream, right? So I'm in a service business. I, I hate the service hamster wheel of sending invoices and having to kind of clamor to get my next project. I want to create a product that has scale. So how did you make that transition? Uh, well, I, I'm a, a product guy since I started business. Um, I worked for Siemens very long years. I worked um, in a SCADA business there, was one of the architects of WinCC. And I learned um, scalable product design from the beginning. And when I started my company, that was always the goal. It was just not reachable in the first year because, um, again, the market was way not ready. It, it's still early, um, even though it's it's everywhere, that word IoT, but it's still an early market. And um, the product idea came in the beginnings, and we built a three CPO for the industrial world. I speak oven, I speak robot, I speak conveyor belt, and I'm translating between them. So I have this flexible golden robot dude, right? <laughs> three CPO, which translates between them. And um, that was the product idea from the beginning. And um, I, I was building that from 2009 until 2014. So it took me five years to do that. Um, and in the meantime, I did the service projects. That doesn't scale, as you mentioned correctly, right? I, I was a small business at the time, but the um, intention was once the product and the service is there, the service to be subscribed to, I can scale out to the next level. And that's exactly what I started with. So I didn't start with the service idea, I started with the product idea, but I had to fall back to the service in order to, well, first of all, survive. And second, to also try out the market, what works and what's not, what the customer wants. So the service, the, the custom consulting was helping you fund the product idea and helping you test your ideas and, 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 and so forth. Right. You know, a lot of people would identify with that, I think, and they would, they would, they would say, that's me. Um, mm -hmm. But every time I get close to my product, I get another, you know, service project uh, that sucks up all my time and resources, and, and my product is perpetually 75% done. How did you have the discipline, or what tools that you use to have the discipline to, to continue the product, even when the service side of the business was you know, very busy? So the, the trick is actually to use the, the, the product inside the service and the consulting very early on, uh, early versions of it, um, experiment with it, refine it on customer projects. 
uh, the only thing you have to be very careful about is um, that you keep your IP protected, right? It's it's my IP, and if I do a service for a company, they own the final product and the final solution, but not the individual product that I was using. So it was kind of a, um, a dance in the beginning. Um, some companies didn't like that. Then I could not use my product. I had to I had to fall back to something custom. And others said no problem. We we license it once you ship, right? In four or five years. So the what really drove me forward is that some of my customers, my early on customers, were um, accepting that and actually helped me develop the product in that sense that they applied it to POCs. POCs a proof of concept. Um, studies, uh, early research, because everybody wanted to experiment with IoT, but they were not ready for real production use. And that's a it's a great uh, phase to be in and trying out new new product ideas. And Chris, talk to me about how you protected your IP. Did, I mean, did you hire a fancy lawyer to write up a like a standard contract? Did, did you just kind of write it in layman's terms, like Warren Buffett does, like one page? You know, I own the stuff. At the you know, you own the end product, but I own the stuff. The ingredients. <laughs> Basically like that. So the contract normally comes from the customer in our industry, and um, then there's a page for exclusion of IP. So they're used to these kind of things, right? Um, and it, it was fairly easy to do that. Otherwise, protection with uh, standard NDAs, standard uh, forms that you can find um, is sufficient at the, was sufficient at the time. Got it. Okay. So you're building this stuff, your proof of concept five years in, um, at, at some point you, you made the switch to the product. Uh, mm -hmm. it sounds like that was roughly 2013, 14, something like that. Correct. In and, 2013, I decided this is customer ready now for, and I need a business partner. So until then I was basically a single, single person company. And in 2014, I decided that's, that's not scaling. So I have to bring in a partner that uh, takes care of the business side. And um, I did that in 2014, early 2014. That's also the time when I started talking to venture. This, um, the, um, the next phase of the business also needed capital injection. So uh, all that happened in 2014. So how did you find your partner? Yeah, I, I interestingly started with the ventures and to every venture uh, capitalist I went, uh, looking at my technology said, that's great, but you cannot do it alone. You need a business partner. So like after the first three interviews, um, I said, that's it. I need a business partner. And the, the third one was with an old friend of mine from Microsoft who said, oh, I, I know this guy who just left B Square, big company, and he's looking for a new venture. Um, give him a call. And I ended up uh, partnering with him. He, he is now a good friend of mine, and um, um, we started off on a very good foot back in 2014. And did you choose to share some equity with him? Did he buy in, or did you give him some shares, or how did how did you kind of compensate him beyond his just salary? Yes, actually, I, I couldn't pay him a salary. It was all based on compensation through equity at the time. So we basically made a made a ownership deal between us where um, I kept 60%, he got 40% uh, with some vesting plan. So if he left the next day, he would not get anything. But if he stays longer, he would reach at some point in time the 40%. And um, that was uh, perfectly fine for him. He was um, having enough reserves on hand that he didn't need a salary. So it was working out really well. That was one of the criteria for my partner that I can only finance him through, through uh, invest. And um, 
yeah, once we found then Trump, Trump was an early investor, an angel investor, basically. Now, now, now to beginning. be clear, that's not Donald Trump. It's nope. Trump, the company. Just give us a bit of backstory on the difference. I mean, just go ahead and tell us who Trump is. Yeah, Trump is a very big uh, machine manufacturer in Germany. They build welding machines, bending machines, um, and uh, their, their main products are all around lasers. So they're one of the, the market leaders in industrial lasers in, in, in the whole world. And um, all the machines that they're building are basically built around um, laser, either laser printing, laser cutting, laser welding, all sorts of interesting stuff you can do with uh, high-performance lasers. Um, they're one of the biggest machine manufacturers in Germany, and nearly all automotive companies in the world have somehow a Trumpf machine in their in their factory. And uh, yeah, and, and were they the original investor in your in your company in 2014? Like, how did that come come about? Yeah, I had two angel investors, friends of mine, that uh, did some uh, early seeding, right? Uh, the typical super first round, which I wouldn't even consider a a um, Series A. But um, with Trump, we started a Series A investment in 2015, so about a year after John started. And John, John being the partner. John being the partner, right? How much did, did Trump put in? Um, they put on um, about a third. Uh, um, you know, at the time it was thirty percent of the company that they bought. Let's say okay. this one. I cannot tell that. Yeah, yeah. But they, they basically. So they bought a big chunk. Uh, yeah, they bought a big chunk, but they didn't want the majority because at the time, the IT was uh, all over the place, and the idea was that we create a standard that other companies would use as well. And they were afraid that if they own the company, that target would would get lost. It would become a Trump standard and not a. A worldwide standard. So the idea was 30%. We have 70%. We're still independent, but still doing our core product and drive the standards forward. And uh, they are just protecting their invest because they was they were also customers of ours and um, wanted to use us in their machines. So it's very important that uh, we don't go out of business a year later and they have whatever 10,000 machines in the field. Right. Yeah, interesting. So they were trying to protect themselves that way. How did you yeah. value the company at that time? in return for their 30%. Like, how, how did you guys come up with a value? You were pre-revenue at that point, right? Yeah, it was pre-revenue. It um, Except we had a couple of customers in that gave us a good price feeling for where we can grow to. Also, we had a license agreement with Trump themselves. So uh, we did some calculations on where that could go to. So it was more a, a projected value than a real value. And um, well, it took some negotiation until we ended up at a, at a, at an amount that would work. Also, the idea was um, not to overfinance us, right? Um, we we have too much money in the in the roads and, and leave the company or something like that. We're afraid of that. So it was just amount uh, just an amount that Trump felt comfortable. We survived the next two three years until the market kicks in. That was kind of the idea. And um, for us, this was exactly what we needed in order to pay our bills, to, in order to grow, in, in order to continue our work. And uh, we were all hoping that the market kicks in in the time frame that we thought. That was a wrong assumption at the time. So um, the IoT is a couple of years old, but it's still not understood very well. So the companies are not buying off the shelf yet. There's a lot of POCs, proof of concepts necessary. 
which do not provide the same amount of revenue than a subscription for a production facility would, right? So um, we're guesstimating right now that this is still another two to three years away, sooner in Europe than here in the US. So um, that led also to the acquisition by Trump because uh, we ran out of money. <laughs> hmm. Okay, tell and me about it, that. Interesting. Yeah, so after after two years when we were supposed to be self-sustaining with our marketing and sales organization that we we set up, um, we were supposed to be at least in the plus. And turns out that um, our focus, because we're an American company here, was on the American market. But the American market compared to the European market is many, many years behind in the industrial space, which is weird, right? But there's... Um, there's a different philosophy uh, in the U.S. versus in Europe. The the industrial philosophy here is never change a running system. So it's very hard to bring something new into a system that's running, um, even though it's not running perfectly. And in Europe, it's how can I improve my running system? They constantly want to improve it and they want to increase productivity. They want to reduce downtime, all these good things. And uh, that leads to more innovation. That's so uh, ironic because, like, when you think culturally, Europe versus the United States. I mean, your U.S. I, I think of as being this bastion of innovation, uh, not exactly. always, you know, yeah, not always yeah. thought through, but but certainly, you know, always try to innovate. Whereas Europe is conservative. You know, like that's really interesting that that in an industrial yeah. context, it's so different. Hmm. But it, this is exactly true what you're just saying. Um, Europe is very conservative and the U.S. is very flexible in new technologies. So once you have a sale in the U.S., you can sell them very modern and, and great ideas. While in Europe, you have to go through a due diligence process and IP protection and cloud fear and all these things. So while I, I see a lot of um, in interest innovation in Europe, the process is much slower. And here, the interest is not so high, but once you're in, it goes much faster to implement. That's fascinating. So it's, a, it's a very, very, uh, at the end, it's about the same same time you need, right? You need way longer to convince the guys here in the U.S. to start. And then when it started, it goes fairly fast. And in Europe, you have the minds open right away, but then it takes forever to implement. Got it. So Chris, and, help, help me square something. So in 2014, it's you and John, um, mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of working away on this on this product uh, that's that's sort of baked at that point, um, how come you ran out of money in two thousand a couple of years later? Uh, like, had you hired employees? Did you have office space? Like, what what changed? Yeah, we we hired employees. Um, we had to, right? I was um, we were having the first uh, customer contracts, and I was the only tech technology guy in the company, and that's way too risky in manufacturing. So you have to at least have one other uh, employee that that is of the same caliber in case somebody dies right or or has is incap incap incapacitated <laughs> so we hired a vp of engineering good friend of mine now he's still in, on board very great guy marcus uh, also an ex microsoft guy also german like me so it was just a perfect play for um for the company and uh, but he's a very senior guy at the time he got a higher salary than john and me um because he was so senior and and that was um, super helpful for the company it drove everything forward but it of course uh, ate up more resources um also the the plan to hire even more was uh, for marketing and sales so we started some initiatives in order to drive that forward and the return was very minimal on that so um, a lot of money was spent on 
on marketing and sales and facility um, that at the time didn't fruit enough as we were hoping. Got it. And so you ran out of money. Um, what next? I mean, like how close were you to having to lay people off? Um, well, in end of 2016, we raised the flag to Trump. If nothing happens by April 2017, we will uh, run out of uh, cash in mid-17. Uh, so that was two and a half years later when we got the first inject. And that was kind of the run rate that we were planning. So it was not surprising. It was just our worst case run rate, right? It was not best case run rate. Um, so uh, we started negotiating in March 2017 um, uh, what we want to do next, right? And um, we all came to the conclusion, all means uh, Trump had a, had a board seat at the time. And um, in March, we discussed that as a board if we asked Trump to acquire us. And the, the decision we made in the board was we will, we will make that request and see what Trump says. And they came back, yep, that's, that's what we want to do. Um, we still think the technology is awesome. We want to use it in our machines. Um, the, the market is way slower than we thought, so that standardization thing most likely will not happen anyway. And if so, C-Labs remains independent as a, as a company. We're still C-Labs Corporation. Uh, we're just uh, like all state and progressive, uh, backed by Trump, right? And um, this was uh, one of the negotiations or one of the things that the board said to Trump that we would like to keep. And Trump agreed to keep us independent, keep us growing um, and inject money as, as needed into the company. Um, another interesting factor that uh, Trump did is they took over sales and marketing for us. So instead of um, us trying that market again, we used the big sales uh, and marketing force of Trump and, and their partners, was, which was that is like awesome. Was that a hostage takeover? Like, or did you did you want them to take over sales and marketing, or or did they do that sort of without your permission? Or, or no, no, no. We, we we negotiated all that and we discussed pros and cons. And the end, um, the, the 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 pros definitely were outweighing the the cons. I I we're a development house per se, and marketing and sales. My my original plan was to use a similar concept that Microsoft uses with the solution providers basically train a solution provider who trains another sales force and so on and so on. Um, but uh, that requires still that you get into the solution providers or in, in the industrial worlds, the, the distributors. And uh, that again requires training from us to them. All that had to be set up and built. And we were not um, able to do that in the beginning. So we're still doing exactly that. Just now we don't have to train the, the distributors that we don't know. We we just train the, the Trump and, and Axum distributors. Axum is um, Trump's cloud. Um, so it's much easier to do that. And uh, for us, the requirement to actually generate revenue uh, went away, which is also a very helpful thing for our engineering department. Sure, sure. So. Talk to me about the negotiation itself, because, mm -hmm. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, you know, you, you've run out of money. You're months away from, from, from having to, you literally run out of cash. Um, I mean, you don't have a lot of mar You don't have a lot of leverage, I guess. Exactly. How did, how did you handle the negotiation, given how kind of weak a, a position you were in from the beginning? Yeah, the. Um... 
it's kind of a two-edged sword when you when you're in that position, right? The the good thing is that we were negotiating with the customer, uh, right? And the customer was kind of dependent on our technology. If we would have said no to the acquisition and went out of business, they would have to rewrite a lot of work that we did for them, right? And and do what we have uh, themselves. And that's a build a build was a spy decision at the end at the at Trump's side, right? Not on our side. And that makes it that gives us a little le- leverage, right? Not m- much, but enough to do a build versus spy calculation. And that's exactly what our financial advisors did. They they uh, looked at the market. They looked at other companies that Trump might have to buy instead of us, and in which price range that would be. And that ended up at the price that we basically got from them. And um, looking at everything, it's a very fair deal in in my mind. Um, uh, if we would have survived like a, a year or two longer, the the price would be much higher, right? That's that's a given. I, I know it, we, I know we talked about it in in advance that you can't mm-hmm. talk about the actual number, but it was it like a, a five figure deal, a six figure deal, a seven figure deal, eight figure. Can you give me any sort of sense of what what it was? Yeah, it it was a, a six a seven digit deal, and the. Uh, interesting thing is parts of the deal are attached to our uh, success in the next couple of years. So um, we got basically interesting incentive plans that make us very, very keen on, first of all, keeping the company running and um, making Trump successful. So that's all connected to uh, that. And if we add all these things up, it's even an eight-digit deal. So it's it's a fairly good deal for the situation we were in. Um, but looking at the uh, amount what our advisors came up with after comparing it to other IoT companies that currently are getting gobbled up by other big companies uh, left and right, um, I think Trump still did a good deal uh, as well. So it's, it was a win-win for, for both sides. That's the that's a great um, great story. <laughs> yes, yeah, it sounds like it. Roughly, what proportion of your consideration was sort of in the earnout at risk, sort of in the next two years. I, I guess it varies a little bit, but if you is it like fifty percent, eighty percent in the future, or or it roughly? Um, yeah, about sixty percent is in the future, I would say, um, and that's that's of course keeping all of us on board, including VP of Engineering. Um, John was was. Um, uh, yeah, Trump demanded that he leaves because sales and marketing will be taken over by uh, by Trump now and, and their organization. So uh, in the sense, there is no reason for a business uh, person of that caliber anymore. And so he got paid out while me and Marcus um, got some money f- during the during the exit and then um, the rest in long term incentive plan uh, if the company is successful. Are you jealous? And I would say it's. Are you jealous at all that, that John's kind of on the beach and, and you're still left holding the bag? <laughs> no, no, uh, it it all worked out well, right? I, my cash out was not not too shabby either, uh, still more than John's, but um, 
I, I have enough incentive to stay on. That's kind of the important part, right? Um, if you get paid out during an exit, um, you might easily say, oh, well, I have enough money, I go on the beach, right? But um, then I would miss out a lot. And also the company would not go where Trump wanted it to be going. And um, so it was in a mutual interest to, to, to find some sort of solution where uh, me and Marcus are super incentivized to stay on and, and continue that, our work. I think it's fascinating that you discovered that, that you, how you discovered the leverage that you had with them in that you're right. If, as a customer, if they, if you'd gone away, they were, they were in, in trouble as well. Now, admittedly, it didn't give you, you know, enormous leverage, but it gave you enough to get a deal done, which is great. Exactly. And without that, we would have been very, very bad cards to, to be honest, because, um, the, the market is not understanding this very well. So even the customers don't understand it very well. And now you go to an investor and explain to them the idea of IoT and an oven talking to a thermostat. <laughs> uh, they might get that part and I say, hey, then built a consumer device. And I say, no, um, consumer devices as small businesses is a deadly uh, undertaking. You, you will have to get buy, bought by a bigger company in order to make that happen. Because uh, the margins are so slow, you, uh, so small, you have to do big, big um, uh, unit numbers and uh, support can kill you. So there's a lot of reasons why consumer is a very tough market. While industrial, the prices are high, the quantities are low. So it's it's normally easier. But again, in, investors don't understand the market. Interesting. Uh, there are very, very few industrial investors out there. Did you think about going to another industrial companies you know, in the same ecosystem or same vein as, as, as Trump? Um, we do, and we did. Um, we, we also offered ourselves to them right at the time. And uh, just before we closed the deal with Trump, we heard that Rockhole was interested in us. Um, but we said, if we switch now, that, that might take too long. Rockwell is, is even bigger than, than Trump. And I know that these negotiations would take way, way longer than what we did with Trump. And also, we had a good history with Trump. We were uh, treated very well with Trump. There was no reason for us to look into any other um, um, investor, except it would have fallen through, right? Yeah. Uh, so always having a backup plan is not a bad thing. Uh, but in, in, in fact, there was no real backup plan that we pursued, I would say. As you look back on the entire arc of the company, you started back in 2008, um, sold in 2017, I guess mm -hmm. nine years, something like that. I mean, if, is there one thing that you might do differently if you could just kind of rewrite history and start from scratch again? Um, actually, no, that sounds weird, but, um, I'm, I'm doing industrial stuff since, um, 91 and, I know the, how the market ticks, how I know how people think and how um, you, you can be successful and not successful. And as a small business starting from scratch, there's really not much you can do different than what we did. If you are not very early, you are a follower and not a, a, a pioneer. And as a follower, you have even a harder time to get your company sold or exited. If you are a pioneer, you're, you're basically aiming towards an exit that is a, is a takeover or acquisition. That's the only thing you can do because uh, pioneers never, never become big. That's, well, 
name to me when Pioneer that got it big, except um, he got investment by huge investors um, and, and the founders left with not much, let's say, in the industrial space. Um, and so there's not much I could have done different. Um, yeah, so it's nothing I, I really regret. I think all the steps I took since um, since the founding of of C-Labs was um, was exactly the way it was at the time, and and couldn't be done better. Yeah, it sounds like it, it was an it was an excellent um, space, and as you say, even in a pioneering industry like the Internet of Things, I appreciate you kind of defining it for me, if nothing else, because now I understand it, <laughs> which is great. Chris, what's the best way for people if they wanted to reach out and say hi? Are you on Twitter or can, can they connect with you on LinkedIn? Like, what's the best way for people to say hi? Yeah, LinkedIn is always the best. Um, that's where I have my my most up to date portfolio and everything. Uh, Twitter, I'm I'm one of those few people that do not really tweet tweet much, so um, I'm I'm always neglecting Twitter a lot. But LinkedIn is good. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, my name is Chris Munch, and I'm I, I can be found in LinkedIn very easily. And Munch is spelled M U E N C H, and I believe Chris, you're the Correct. only Chris Munch on. Uh, actually, I'm not. I found a couple of Chris Munch uh, here, <laughs> even in, in America, which is very amazing. So, well, just look for Chris Munch C Labs, and I think you'll probably find it. <laughs> exactly. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.